3: Working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana.
1: And financially supported by listeners like you.
3: Hello, and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Today's Eco Report is being aired in remembrance of Linda Green. Who wrote stories and delivered script for Eco Report beginning in October of 2012. That's 10 years that she fought for the environment through Eco Report. Norm Holy, our other scriptwriter, said that she was a great warrior for environmental causes and is proof that the pen is mightier than the sword. All of us at WFHB Radio and the Volunteers for Eco Report will miss her. Coming up later in today's feature report. Enrique Sands with the Indiana Environmental Reporter will discuss PFAS uniforms, which covers PFAS chemicals in water and stain-resistant school uniforms. And
0: now for your environmental reports. WFYI reports that the new executive director for the Hoosier Environmental Council hopes to tackle some big issues in his new role. Sam Carpenter said Indiana has several areas of concern when it comes to the environment. Quote, we have more unprotected, unregulated coal ash pits in the state of Indiana than I think any other state in the nation, end quote, Carpenter said. And there are issues around our wetlands where, unfortunately, legislation went through the last session in which they eased the regulations around building in wetlands. Carpenter said his work will focus on making connections to address those issues and more. Quote, one of the things that I'm interested in doing is connecting with those people who care about this, those people who want to see their wetlands protected, who want to see climate change addressed, and help them plug in to how they can get involved and make an impact. And really, a lot of that is our representatives need to hear from us, end quote, Carpenter said. Carpenter succeeds Jesse Carabanda, who led the organization for more than 14 years. Carpenter is the former executive director of Indiana based nonprofit fair trade retail outlet Global Gifts. Most recently, he consulted with small businesses and nonprofits on strategic planning, turnarounds, and growth strategies. He will begin full time with the Hoosier Environmental Council on December 1st.
3: We haven't given an update on the ash trees for some time. The magazine, Indiana Woodland Steward, reviewed the situation last summer. The lead author was Kathleen Knight, a research ecologist with the USDA Forest Service, Northern Research Station, located in Delaware, Ohio. The article reports that since its accidental introduction near Detroit, Michigan in the mid-1990s, Emerald Ash Borer, also known as EAB, has rapidly spread through much of the U.S. and adjacent Canada, leaving millions of dead ash trees in midwestern states. Unfortunately, EAB attacks trees as small as an inch in stem diameter and it attacks all five ash species native to the region, white, green, black, pumpkin, and blue. Nearly 100% of the trees attacked by the beetle eventually die. Yearly monitoring of ash forest sites across Ohio began in 2005 to understand the effects of EAB on ash populations and forests. Several interesting results have emerged. Mortality was first evident in Northwest Ohio sites in 2006, Most of the Toledo area plots reached more than 95% mortality of ash trees by 2009, and many of the central Ohio sites had reached more than 95% mortality by 2013. At a single stand scale, it can take three to six years for the ash trees to decline from healthy to nearly complete mortality. Partway through the infestation, it is typical to see a mix of healthy declining and dead trees. After ash trees die, they rapidly become brittle and fall. In our sites, over 80% of the trees fell within five years of death. We found several factors were related to how quickly the trees die, including the initial health of the trees. Initially healthier trees live longer, and ash density. Trees in stands with greater ash density live longer. As the infestation progresses and the EAB populations build to high levels, mortality accelerates until nearly all the trees have died. Then, after nearly exhausting their food source, EAB populations crash to low levels but persist, probably feeding on small ash saplings as the saplings become large enough to be attacked. The loss of ash from forest ecosystems may cause a cascade of effects, from growth of competing trees that now find themselves with less competition to invasive plant species taking advantage of the light that reaches the forest floor as canopy gaps open, to massive amounts of coarse woody debris piling up in ash floodplain forest, to effects on insects and wildlife. We have shown how maples and elms grow rapidly in response to ash mortality, how forest productivity can decline due to EAB, and how woodpeckers take advantage of the new food source EAB larvae provide. The largest effects of EAB are most likely to be seen where ash trees are the dominant species in the canopy and few other trees are poised to fill in the gaps left behind by the ash. While collecting data in our northwest Ohio ash sites in 2009, we noticed a few surviving large healthy looking ash trees within a sea of EAB killed trees. We performed a complete survey of the site in 2010 two years after more than 95% of the ash trees at the site had died and found 111 healthy, lingering ash trees representing less than 1% of the original population of over 11,000 ash trees. We have continued to monitor these trees, and many of the trees have remained healthy, although some have died. We are studying whether these ash trees might have natural tolerance or resistance to EAB. And the preliminary results from greenhouse experiments look promising. Research and controlled breeding effects for these lingering ash trees
0: are ongoing. The Indiana Environmental Reporter says an Indiana conservation officer investigation has resulted in multiple charges, fines, and the first lifetime hunting suspension of its kind in state history for a West Lafayette man, according to an Indiana Division of Natural Resources news release. Hanson Pusey, 25, was recently sentenced in Warren County Court to a lifetime hunting suspension along with home detention, probation, and payment of replacement fees resulting from an investigation by DNR law enforcement involving the illegal hunting of wild turkeys in Indiana and six other states. In spring 2020, conservation officers in District 3 received information that Pusey, whose hunting privileges had been suspended since March 2019, was still hunting and taking multiple turkeys illegally in Indiana and other states. Using advanced surveillance techniques, investigators monitored Pusey, gathering evidence of poaching in North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and Massachusetts, as well as in Indiana, where they documented him taking four spring turkeys in Indiana after the close of the 2020 season. Officers also documented Pusey helping family and friends poach turkeys. Search warrants were served on the man's residence and in cooperation with the other state's fish and wildlife law enforcement agencies.
3: The Public News Service reports that nearly all Indiana coal plants are releasing toxins into the local groundwater, according to information released in a new report from two nonprofits, the Environmental Integrity Project and Earth Justice. The report shows improper storage of waste material from coal-fired power plants is causing unsafe levels of groundwater contamination at 91% of U.S. coal plants. The EAP implemented the coal ash rule in 2015 requiring power plants to monitor local groundwater and regulating safe storage of the byproducts of coal combustion. Abel Russ, senior attorney with the Environmental Integrity Project and director of the Center for Applied Environmental Science, said almost all of the coal-fired power plants in Indiana are polluting the groundwater. Quote, There are 50 disposal units in Indiana and in our database. 47 of those are contaminated, so that's 94% of the disposal units. End quote. Russ said, Quote, are in some kind of corrective action, which is good and better than the national average, but none of those sites have selected a final remedy yet, so they haven't committed to a cleanup plan." The Edison Electric Institute, a trade association representing U.S. investor-owned electric companies, said as producers begin to close basins where coal ash is stored, they are doing so in ways that put safety first, protect the environment, minimize impacts to the community, and manage costs for customers, it said. When it was written, the coal ash rule only applied to ash dumps that were active in 2015. Older containment sites were excluded from the groundwater regulations. Russ said about half of the ash dumps in the nation are unregulated. Quote, so when you look at any particular power plant and you're applying a rule that only applies to two or three coal ash dumps, Even though there are four or five on the site, you can imagine that it's not going to be super effective, and so we're calling on EPA to require some kind of site-wide corrective action or otherwise expand the scope of the rule so that it's dealing with all of the coal ash that's buried at any particular location, end quote, Russ said. The report said at least 170 ash containment sites are not currently regulated.
0: The Indiana Environmental Reporter congratulates two Indiana educators who will be honored for their innovative approaches to teaching science at the National Association of Biology Teachers Conference in Indianapolis in November. Kristen Milks, a science teacher at Bloomington South High School in Monroe County will receive the Ecology and Environmental Science Teaching Award for developing and demonstrating an innovative teaching approach in ecology and environmental science and for carrying her commitment to the environment into the community. Quote, It's pretty exciting to be recognized by educators who are really thinking beautifully and critically about education in this country, particularly about climate change, something that is going to touch all of our lives in increasingly immediate ways. Being recognized for that work is exciting, end quote, Milks told Indiana Environmental Reporter. Aaron Moksek, Indiana University biology professor will receive the Evolution Education Award for innovative teaching and community education efforts in the promotion of the accurate understanding of biological evolution. Quote, it's confirmation that what I built over the years is recognized for its impact. I would do it anyhow, but the confirmation is very much appreciated, especially coming from the teachers who are my heroes and experts in the educational trenches, end quote. Moksek told Indiana Environmental Reporter. And now Enrique signs with the Indiana Environmental Reporter will discuss PFAS uniforms, which covers PFAS, PFAS chemicals in water and stain-resistant school uniforms.
2: After a couple of months, kids have mostly found their school routines. With some variation, it's get up, do your business, brush your teeth, put on your clothes, and then let's get ready to head to school. But without knowing it, some students' routine involves putting on clothes made with a potentially toxic chemical. A new international study has found that children are being exposed to PFAS chemicals through the use of stain-proof and waterproof school uniforms and outdoor wear. Many Indiana schools require some sort of uniform or equivalent dress code that require clothing like solid-colored collared shirts and pants that are available in stain-proof versions. The stain-proof versions of the clothing prevent liquids and other particles from being absorbed into the fabric, extending the life of the clothing and making it easier to clean. Researchers from Indiana University, University of Notre Dame, and universities in Canada and Switzerland studied 72 stain-resistant textile products available for children, including school uniforms, outdoor wear, and other items finding all of the products tested contained PFAS chemicals. Stain-resistant school uniforms had the highest concentration of PFAS chemicals, potentially exposing children to the chemicals via inhalation or absorption through the skin. PFAS chemicals have been used to make products that are resistant to water, fire, grease, and stain since the 1940s, including household name-brand products like Teflon, Gore-Tex, and Scotchgard. More than 9,000 PFAS chemicals exist, but only few have been studied thoroughly. The chemicals have been linked to increased risk of kidney or testicular cancer, increased cholesterol levels, liver damage, and increased risk of high blood pressure or preeclampsia in pregnant women. Exposure to PFAS chemicals has also been linked to decreased vaccine response in children, a potentially fatal impediment to the development of a child's acquired immune system. PFAS chemicals have been found in water, air, fish, and soil throughout the world, from Indiana tap water to Antarctic rainwater. They have been given the nickname Forever Chemicals due to their persistence in the environment. The chemicals do not break down naturally and can remain in the environment for a very long time. That is a concern for researchers, because PFAS chemicals are essentially everywhere and can accumulate in the human body for at least five years. This is Indiana University Associate Professor Marta Venier, an environmental chemist and the study's corresponding author.
1: Children are particularly susceptible to environmental exposures because they are uh, developing, their bodies are forming, their brains are uh, growing, and so they are particularly susceptible to exposures to chemicals.
2: The researchers looked at products children are exposed to for longer periods of time, like school uniforms outdoor wear and products like bibs, hats, and stroller covers marketed as stain resistant or water resistant. They tested the products for 49 PFAS chemicals, finding forever chemicals in all of them.
1: So We looked at some rain gear and some outdoor products, as well as bibs, a little bit of some shoes, stroller covers, things that were water resistant. So we were not surprised about the water resistant items because we know that for the longest time they've been treated with PFAS because they, they were water resistant. And so we know that one of the easiest way to achieve water resistance is by adding PFAS, even though now there's alternative ways. So there's even for water resistant, there is no more reason to use PFAS. You can make a product water resistant without PFAS but we were a little surprised about the stain-resistant products because uh, even though we know that even for achieving resistant to stain, PFAS can be used, we were surprised that all of the uniforms had PFAS.
2: The school uniforms tested had the largest concentration of PFAS chemicals, with the most detected chemicals being 62 fluorotelomer alcohol, also known as 6,2-FTOH, and trideca hexyl ethyl or 6,2-FMTAC. The first chemical I mentioned, 6,2-FTOH, has mainly been used in grease-proof food packaging. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration published an analysis in 2020 that found the chemical could migrate from food packaging to people and damage their liver and kidneys. That study found that people who regularly come into contact with the packaging could be affected, meaning if your fast food place uses packaging with 6-2-FTOH, and you go there a lot, there's a chance your liver, kidneys, or both could be affected. Just a reminder, this is the same chemical found in stain-proof school uniforms. Several months after the release of the analysis, the FDA announced a three-year phase-out of the 6-2-FTOH food packaging that would allow manufacturers to sell their existing stocks without disrupting food packaging availability during the COVID-19 pandemic. The FDA's announcement did not impact other uses of the product. The second chemical I mentioned, 62 ftmac was found in school uniforms in smaller concentrations. It has been linked to respiratory tract irritation, organ damage through prolonged or repeated exposure, and has also been found to be very toxic to aquatic life. Besides steam proof clothing, 6-2-FTMAC is also used to make various construction materials.
1: One of the contradictions of the regulatory system in the U.S. that every single application has a different process. If it's not safe in our food, how can it be safe to wear it, to inhale it, to breathe it?
2: Both 6-2-FTOH and 6-2-FTMAC were among many PFAS chemicals created to replace the big hitters the most widely known PFAS chemicals like PFOA, PFOS, and other legacy PFAS chemicals, whose adverse health and environmental effects were becoming more well-known. PFOA and PFOS were studied for decades, but the health risks were kept quiet. The research mainly came from three sources. 3M, the company that created the chemicals, the Department of Defense, which purchased PFAS firefighting foam from 3M beginning in the 1970s, and companies that use the chemicals to produce their own products, like DuPont. The research found the chemicals posed risks to the environment and wildlife decades before the EPA sought to regulate their use in any form. A large amount of data on the effects of PFOA and PFAS on human health came as a result of a major lawsuit filed against DuPont and its offshoot company, Chemours in 2005. The C8 health project that came about due to the case settlement collected health data from about 65,000 people living near areas where products using PFOA and PFOS were manufactured. The story behind that case is now a movie starring Mark Ruffalo and Anne Hathaway called Dark Waters. You should check it out, it's pretty good. Nearly two decades after that health study, the EPA is on the verge of setting enforceable limits on the amount of PFOA and PFOS in drinking water. The agency is also in the process of designating them as hazardous substances under the nation's Superfund law and is tracking the use and disposal of more than a hundred other replacement PFAS chemicals. But not 6-2-FTOH and 6-2-FTMAC. The two and many other replacement PFAS chemicals were created with shorter carbon chains to make them less persistent in the environment, but they continued to pose risks to human health.
1: We know more about certain PFAS than others, but because of these chemicals are all somewhat similar in structures, even when we don't know as much, we can predict that they will be as toxic and not safe. And we know enough at this point about PFAS. We know that they've been associated with cancer. We know that they've been associated with infertility. We know they've been associated with reduced immune response. So we don't need a lot more information
2: Venier said there is a push to treat all PFAS chemicals as a single chemical class.
1: We have to stop regulating them one by one because it requires testing them one by one. And we simply don't have the time. When you think that we have 9,000 chemicals to regulate and control, how can we do that? We don't have the time. We don't have the money for that. So we know enough to know that they are toxic and most likely the benefit of using them doesn't outweigh the risk
2: of using them. So what can parents do to minimize the risk of PFAS contamination?
1: For future purchases, they should look at labels. Now they have information. And so it's safe to assume that if an item is labeled as stain-resistant, it's likely to have PFAS. There's a gray area around stain-resistant, stain-repellent. Stain um, easy care there's a bunch of different ways of labeling and it's not a uniform way of using these labels but in general if it contains some stain treatment some reference to a stain treatment it's safe to assume that it will contain uh, pfas and so parents should look for a similar item that is not marketed like that and then washing more times more often will help slowly remove PFAS. Another way is to look for uh, used clothes, secondhand clothes, because those will have been washed several
2: times. Some more expensive manufacturers of the clothing kids can use for school uniforms like Gap, American Eagle, and Ralph Lauren and others have pledged to eliminate PFAS from their clothing within the next several years. But more affordable retailers like Walmart, Target, JCPenney's, Macy's and Costco have not moved to stop producing or selling PFAS uniform clothing.
3: For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly, and I'm Cynthia Roberts. Here at Eco Report we are currently looking for reporters, engineers and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHP also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org.
0: And now for some upcoming events. Join Volunteer Anthony on Saturday, december third, from 1 to 3 p.m. for a two-hour, very rugged Cave River Valley hike at Spring Mill State Park. Meet in Donaldson Cave parking lot to carpool to the off-site property that Spring Mill manages. There is no restroom and you will need to wear waterproof shoes. Take the Judah Bridge hike at Monroe
3: Lake on Tuesday, December the 6th from 10 to 11.45 a.m., This guided hike will go to the location where the 1884 Judah-covered bridge once spanned Salt Creek. It was dismantled in 1947. Learn
0: the history regarding the site. Meet at the Pantown State Recreation Area parking lot. A Devil's Backbone guided hike is scheduled at Charlestown State Park on Friday, December 9th from 10 a.m. to noon. This is a 2.5 mile hike along the devil's backbone, which is not open to the public and is offered only as a guided hike in the winter months. Email J that's jBeAVIn at dnr. I- Enjoy a cold full moon hike at Brown
3: County State Park on Friday, December the 9th from 5:30 to 7 p.m. While enjoying the full moon, you will hike on Trail 7 around Lake Ogle. This is a moderate 1.2-mile hike. On the hike, you will learn the history and folklore of the cold full moon.
0: Join the naturalist for a unique 1-mile easy hike on Trail 7 at the 4th Annual Candle Lit Hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, December 10th from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. The trail will be lit up for the night, and you will receive hot chocolate and cookies after the hike. Meet at the Tulip Poplar Shelter to learn about the creatures of the night and their winter survival skills. Eco Report is brought
3: to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems, MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com.
0: This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Our feature was prepared and presented by Enrique Sines with the Indiana Environmental Reporter. Our script today was assembled by Juliana Daly and edited by Patrick Callanan, Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced today's show and edited its audio. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly, and I'm Cynthia Roberts.
3: And this is Eco Report.
1: You've been listening to the Eco Report,
3: a volunteer-powered
0: production of Community Radio WFHB
1: in Bloomington, Indiana.
0: Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org.
2: Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source
0: for South Central Indiana,
2: bringing you news
3: that the earth wants you to hear.
0: Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas
3: directly to the Eco Report staff.
0: The email address is
2: earth@ at wfhb.org.
0: That's earth at wfhb.org.